0: Now yeah, you can see me. Yeah. Earlier in the year, I read this book, Tunnel 29, the true story of an extraordinary escape beneath the Berlin Wall. Now, it's said in the aftermath of World War II when Berlin was divided by the Berlin Wall. The western side controlled by the Allies, and the eastern side controlled by the Soviet Union. And this book tells the story of a young man named Joachim Rudolph. Now, he's living in East Berlin with his mother, but he decides that he's had enough of living under communist control. And during one dark evening in 1961, he manages uh, to find an unguarded field. And during the the dark of the night, he escapes into the West and he's free. He, He starts a new life. He goes to university. He's free. But then just a few months later, Joachim is tunneling his way back into East Berlin He's digging a tunnel directly under the Berlin Wall. Now, why was he doing it? To rescue others, to help others escape East Berlin and taste the freedom that he's found. Now, I won't ruin the the story and and tell you what happens, but, but I just want you to imagine for a moment the courage that it took for this young man to return to where he'd escaped to go back into East Berlin. He knew it was dangerous. He knew it might cost him his life, but he did it anyway to help others, to help those in need. And the reason I tell you about this story is not only because it's a really great book, but also because this is kind of what is happening in our passage today in Acts 21. The Apostle Paul is going back to Jerusalem. And he knows it's going to be dangerous. He knows it might cost him his life, but he does it anyway, to obey God and for the sake of others. Now, if you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we are currently working our way through the book of Acts. Now, Acts shows us, tells us how the the movement of Jesus started as this small movement in Jerusalem and then spread to the ends of the earth, and this is really what we've been seen, what we've seen happening in the last few weeks. The, the apostle Paul, a missionary in the early church, he's travelling around the ancient world, telling people about Jesus, planting churches. But now, after uh, doing a number of missionary journeys through the ancient world, he's decided that it's time to go back to Jerusalem. This is what we read in in, in chapter nineteen, verse twenty one. After all this had happened. Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And this is really what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. It's about Paul in Jerusalem and then in Rome. Chapters 21 to 23 focus on Paul in Jerusalem, and then chapters 24 to 28 is Paul before the Romans and in the city of Rome itself. And this is what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, Paul in Jerusalem and in Rome. Now, we're not going to be covering everything. There's eight chapters left, and we've only got three weeks left in our series. But we are going to be touching on some of the main events that happen in these chapters. And today, what we're looking at is Paul's arrival in the city of Jerusalem. And there's really a bit of a shift in the the narrative at the beginning of this chapter. There's there's a, a, a turning point in the book of Acts. You see, so far, Paul has been on the offensive. He's been taking the gospel forward into Europe and into Turkey, and we've seen lots of people become Christians and lots of churches planted. But now, in this latter section of the book of Acts, Paul is on the defensive. He's going to be beaten up and arrested and tried multiple times. He's going to have to defend himself multiple times. I mean, if you thought that life had been difficult for Paul up to this point, it's about to get even more difficult for him. And so we are going to learn some important lessons from Paul's example in these chapters. We're going to be given a picture of what courageous faith looks like. We're going to see a faith which is willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus, a faith which is willing to go even into danger and difficulty. And we need this, don't we? I mean, if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully in our day and in our context, we're going to need courage. And so we can learn from the Apostle Paul in these chapters. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the story together. I'm going to explain some of the detail that's in there, and then we'll pull out a couple of lessons at the end. So it'd be great if you've got your Bibles with you to have them open there to Acts 21 as we kind of work through this story together and then apply it at the end. So let's begin in verse 17. And what we see there is that when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he receives a warm welcome. Verse 17. But it doesn't take long for him to get down to business. The very next day, Paul goes to see James. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus. James was the author of the letter of James in the New Testament. And James was also the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so this is a meeting of two heavy hitters in the ancient church. You've got Paul, the apostle, the missionary to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and you've got James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was a church made up mostly of Jews. It would have been fascinating to be at this meeting. Now, what was on the agenda? We see it there in verse 19. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, it's a small detail, but I just want you to notice how Paul's mission is described there in verse 19. It doesn't say, Paul reported what he had done among the Gentiles. It says, Paul reported what God had done among the Gentiles. The focus is on God, not Paul. Paul is not carrying out his ministry with God's help. No, God is carrying out his mission through Paul's ministry. And this is always the case in Christian life and and service and ministry. We're not enlisting God to help us in our mission. No, we're asking God to use us in his mission. God is at work in the world, and the good news is that we get to be part of it. We're included in it. You know, our mission as a church is to help more people find life in Jesus. But it's not really our mission. It's God's mission. We want to be part of it. We want to be on board with it. And this is what Paul explains to James and the elders. He shares how many people were coming to faith in Jesus. Specifically, many Gentiles, non-Jews, were coming to faith in Jesus and entering into the church. Now, what was the response of these Jewish church leaders? How did they feel about the influx of these non-Jewish people into the church? Well, look at verse 20. When they heard this, they praised God. These church leaders in Jerusalem understood that the good news of Jesus is not just for Jews, it's for all people. It's a message for the whole world. You know, they probably remembered what God had said uh, to Abraham, the promise that God had made to Abraham way back in Genesis 22. Do you remember it? God said to this man named Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. This has always been God's plan. This has always been God's intention. And these church leaders can see this promise being fulfilled in front of them. And this is why they rejoice. It's a beautiful moment but as is often the case in churches it wasn't all butterflies and lollipops there was an issue that they needed to raise with Paul there was a rumor that they'd heard about Paul and they wanted to ask him about it look look at what they say verse 20 then they said to Paul you see brother how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law Now, what they're doing is they're saying to Paul, you know, it's wonderful to hear what God has done among the Gentiles. But look at what God has done in Jerusalem as well. Thousands of Jews have believed in Jesus. Thousands of Jews have become part of the Christian church. But because they're still Jewish people and they're still living in a Jewish city, they still value their their Jewish laws and customs. They haven't left them behind. They're still zealous for them. But there's a problem, Paul. They've heard that you are not. Look at verse 21. They have been informed that you, Paul, teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, the the, the law which was given through Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Essentially, there was a rumor going through the church in Jerusalem You couldn't imagine it, could you? There's a rumor going through the church in Jerusalem that Paul was anti-Jewish. That Paul was telling Jewish Christians to stop practicing their Jewish customs and traditions. Now, it's not hard to imagine how this rumor developed. After all, as Paul traveled around the ancient world, he wasn't inviting people to become Jewish. He was inviting them to become Christians. He wasn't inviting them to obey the Jewish law. He was inviting them to put their trust in Jesus. It's not hard to imagine how these rumors might have started, but the question is, are they true? Now, the answer is not exactly. You see, Paul makes crystal clear in his writings that we're not saved by obeying the law, but we're saved by trusting in God's Son. For example, he writes in in Galatians chapter 2, we know... That a person is not justified, that is, made right with God by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by trusting in Jesus alone. But does this mean that we do away with the law? Does this mean that we get rid of it, we reject it? Well, the answer is not necessarily, as long as we understand it rightly, See, there are other places in Paul's writings where he talks about Jewish customs and Jewish traditions. He talks about certain days and feasts and foods. And he essentially says, you know, some people only eat certain things. Other people observe certain days and festivals, but it doesn't really matter in the end. As long as you know that these things don't make you right before God, as long as you know that these things don't make you better than others... It's not wrong to participate in these things. For example, he talks about this in Romans 14, if you want to look it up a little bit later. You see, Paul did not necessarily want to put a stop to Jewish customs. He simply wanted to ensure that these customs did not replace Christ. And I'm sure that he explained this to James and the elders at this meeting of the, the big wigs, but they evidently wanted something more. They wanted Paul to to prove it and so they put this proposal before the apostle Paul now I won't read it out again but basically there are these four Jewish Christians in the church and they have performed a vow they've made a vow it's probably the Nazarite vow they're going to be purified they're going to have their heads shaved and they want Paul to join in with this vow and they want him to pay for the expenses involved in it And they believe that if Paul will do this, then everyone will know that he's not anti-Jewish, that he's not opposed to Jewish customs. Now, let me ask you, what would you do if you were Paul? Would you submit to this proposal from the elders? Maybe, like me, you would instinctively think, no way. I've given you my word, and my word should be enough. I don't have to submit to this vow to prove myself. I mean, they've got the problem, not me. Maybe you, you would react like me. But look what Paul does. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made For each of them, Paul submits to the plan. He says, yes. He says, I'll do it. This is an amazing response. And we'll we'll talk about it in in, in more detail in a moment. But whatever it was that led Paul to kind of make this decision, it didn't work out the way they were hoping. It didn't work out the way the elders were, were hoping it would, because when Paul is in the temple complex, he is spotted by some Jews. And they recognize him, and they stir up the crowd against him. They even accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple complex. Doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but if you did this in this day, if you were a Gentile and you walked into the inner court of the temple, it is an offense that was punishable by death. Even a Roman citizen, if they wandered into the inner court of the temple, they would be put to death. This is a serious accusation. Of course, it wasn't true. Uh, It it wasn't Paul hadn't actually done this, but it didn't really matter. They assumed it was true, and the result was chaos. Look at verse thirty and thirty-one. The whole city was worked up, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, now talk about things escalating quickly. I mean, what began with a warm welcome in Jerusalem, it is now descended into attempted murder. They want Paul dead. Now, thankfully for Paul, the Roman soldiers kept a close eye on what was going on in the temple. They actually had a garrison of 500 soldiers that were located in the Tower of Antonia, which was just a couple of flights of stairs away. And sure enough, it didn't take long for them to hear what was happening and to to storm in and to deal with the situation. Now, Paul was probably thinking, thank goodness. That was getting out of hand there for a minute. But now the Romans are here. I'm going to be okay. Look at verse 33. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Paul's probably thinking, wait a minute, what They're beating me up, and you're arresting me? Arrest them. But this is a bit like protective custody. They're taking Paul into custody to protect him and to work out what's happened. But again, it doesn't really work. The crowd is so worked up, they can't make sense of what has happened. They order Paul to be taken to the barracks, but the crowd becomes so violent, they literally have to carry Paul out of that place. And and as they're carrying him out, we read in verse 36 at the end, the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him, away with him. The situation for Paul has deteriorated dramatically. Within a week of arriving in Jerusalem, he's gone from being welcomed warmly, meeting with church leaders, to being arrested and facing death. And this is really going to be typical of Paul's time in Jerusalem. In fact, what you see in the the rest of chapter 21 is that after he's kind of taken away, Paul asks the Romans for the opportunity to address the crowd. You've got to admire his guts. And so he stands up, he talks to the crowd, he tells them about Jesus, they get all worked up again and Paul's got to be taken out of there again. And this happens at least two more times in these chapters while Paul is in Jerusalem. Now the question is what do we learn from all of this? What does Paul's time in Jerusalem teach us about following Jesus in our day? Just two lessons that I want us to to close with. The first is this. Following Jesus means facing danger. Following Jesus means facing danger. You know, maybe you've heard the saying... The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Now, I understand what people mean when they say this. And in an ultimate sense and in a spiritual sense, it's true. But in an immediate and in a physical sense, it is not true. Being a follower of Jesus does not give you a free pass to avoid suffering does not make you magically impervious to trouble. It does not mean that you will always manage to avoid danger. You know, I, I went to see the uh, Super Mario Brothers movie with my kids earlier this year, and I will admit I loved it as much as they did. But without giving too much away, the, the plot revolves around the search for a superstar. Now, this superstar in the Mario universe makes you Invincible. It makes you temporarily impervious to harm and to danger. Let me say this. When you place your faith in Jesus, you do not receive a superstar. You're adopted into God's family. You're filled with God's spirit. You're safe and secure in God's hands, but you do not become magically invincible. Christians get sick. Christians get depressed. Christians have accidents. Christians lose their jobs. Christians have their homes broken into. Christians even get beaten up and arrested unfairly. Being a Christian does not make you immune from danger in fact following jesus in some ways is a ticket to danger you know jesus did not say in this world you won't have trouble he did not even say in this world you might have trouble he said in this world you will have trouble A relationship with God through Jesus is not a ticket to be happy, healthy, and whole. does not mean all your dreams will come true, at least not in this life. And Paul knew this better than anyone. He faced danger everywhere in Jerusalem. And you know, this wasn't a surprise to him. He knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. Do you remember what he said to the Ephesian elders last week in chapter 20 as he's on his way to Jerusalem? He said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul knew the hardships that were waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he went anyway. Why? Because God told him to go. Because the Holy Spirit compelled him to go. To go directly towards danger because following Jesus means facing danger. Now how could it be otherwise if this is what the Lord Jesus has done for us? You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he faced the ultimate danger for us. The judgment of God upon our sin and our evil so that we could follow him into lesser dangers. Now I guess the question is, well, what about you? What about me? It's so easy to settle for a comfortable Christianity. To to, to settle for a faith that gives a lot to me but doesn't ask a lot of me. A faith that has limits on it. God, I'll do this, but not that. I'll go here, but not there. I'll give this much, but not that much. And where in your life do you need to to get rid of the limits? Where where do you need to take down the barrier? Where is God calling you to follow? It might be dangerous. It might be risky. probably is but he will go with you. You know, later in Acts 23, when Paul's in prison, we read this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Doesn't say the Lord rescued him. It doesn't say the Lord removed him. It said the Lord stood by him and he will stand by you too. He might not remove you from the danger. He might not pull you out of the suffering and the trouble, but he will stand by you to the very end. Because he stood for you on the cross. Stood in your place for your sins so that you can know he'll never let you go. When David Livingstone, the the, the famous missionary to Africa, was once asked, David, aren't you afraid? that going into Africa will be too difficult and too dangerous? He replied, he said, I am immortal until the will of God is accomplished. In other words, he's saying, I will live as long as it takes for God to do what he's going to do in and through me. Following Jesus means facing danger. Second thing I want us to see is that following Jesus means forfeiting your rights. You know, what Paul does in, in verse 26 when he submits to this vow, when he participates in the plan of this elders, You know it really confuses commentators and scholars. I read a lot of commentaries this week and there were a lot of different views. Some thought Paul was being sinful, doing the wrong thing. Some thought he was being unwise, Some thought he was being weak. He was giving in to James and the elders. But I don't think any of those reasons explain why Paul does what he does when he participates in this vow. I don't think he's being sinful. I don't think he's being unwise. I don't think he's being weak. I think he's being loving. I think he's humbly thinking about others. I think he's sacrificially wanting to serve others. I mean, this was an issue that threatened to divide the church. But rather than demand his rights, I don't have to submit to this vow, he forfeits his rights. He gives them up to serve others. And this was characteristic of Paul's ministry. He explains it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul writing, and he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. This is exactly what Paul did in Jerusalem. He was willing to participate in this vow, not because he particularly wanted to, I don't think he he would have particularly wanted to do this vow. But he did it for the sake of the gospel. He did it for the unity of the church. And he did it for the glory of Jesus. These things were more important to Paul than his personal preferences. Here's the way Al Mohler puts it in his commentary on Acts Listen carefully to this. He says, Paul's character throughout Acts shows believers today something astounding about true freedom. Paul knows the freedom he now has as a child of God. Believers, however, can let freedom, listen to this, assume the status of an idol and consequently enslave themselves to freedom. We can easily entrench ourselves in our own freedom and thus paralyze our ability to serve others. True freedom, as Paul demonstrates, means we can dispense with our own preferences, wants, and needs. Listen to this. True freedom is a freedom from self. Freed from selfishness, Christians can lay down their own desires as a sacrifice on the altar of Christian love. Paul, though free from the law, made himself a servant of the law in order to love his brothers and sisters in Christ. That is true Christian liberty. In other words, let me just put it very simply. True Christian freedom is to let love limit our liberty. To let love limit our liberty. Now, does this mean that we never appeal to our rights? No. I mean, even in this same section in Acts 22, Paul's about to be flogged by the Romans, and he appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen. But when it comes to matters of the gospel... When it comes to the unity of the church, Paul was willing to forfeit his rights. Now, what does this look like? You know, it's perhaps easier to talk about this in theory. What does this look like in practice? Let me just give you one really small example. I know that there are some of you in our church family that you would prefer if we sang more hymns. Some would prefer if we sang more quietly. And yet, I know so many of you, because we've talked about this, you're willing to set aside your preference for the sake of others and the unity of the church. You're willing to forfeit your rights. You're willing to let love limit your liberty. It's a small example. I'm sure you could think of others. But following Jesus means forfeiting your rights. And the reason that we're called to do this is because this is what Jesus has done for us. I mean, when he came from heaven to earth, he forfeited his rights. He set aside his preferences. He gave up his privileges and he did it for us. I mean, you know what Philippians 2 says, don't you, if you're a believer? It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul was following the example of Jesus, and we are now called to follow the example of Jesus. To show humble, self forgetting, status relinquishing love. To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5. To consider others more important than yourself, Philippians 2. To outdo one another in showing honour, Romans 15. To love your neighbour as yourself, Mark 12. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, it's not. It's hard, it's uncommon, it's unpopular, but it's also compelling. It's glorious, it's like Jesus. And we can do it because Jesus has done it for us. He crossed every barrier for us. He has gone to the depths for us. He has done more than just dig a tunnel into hostile territory. He has crossed the cosmos for us to take onto himself our guilt and shame and to set us free. And when we gaze at him, it'll make us ready to face danger and willing to forfeit our rights. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus, the one who has crossed the cosmos for us, come near to us, humbled himself to become like us, and submitted himself even to death on a cross for us. Help us to gaze at him so that we might be willing to follow him wherever he leads and serve others like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.